This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, February 2nd, the Child Care War Machine edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate and the dad of Eliza, age six, and Leo, who's two and a half. And I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry, eight, Sam, six, and Wally, three. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the cost of child care and the long history of attempts to do something about it, and why do boy-girlfriends die off in preschool, plus parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a call from a listener with a football problem. If you're a member of Slate Plus, thank you for your support. If you're not a member, you can become one and hear the special extra-long Slate Plus edition of this and other almost equally good Slate podcasts by visiting slate.com slash Plus. That's slate.com slash mom and dad plus. And be sure to check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting, where this week you will see an update from Dan Coyce, who has arrived in Wellington, New Zealand, and who has a lot of exciting news about how his family is adjusting to life down under. Uh, that's facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Click like while you're there. Uh, that's all the announcements from me for a minute, uh, because Allison has one of her own. I do, and it's kind of a hard one to make. But I have decided uh, to pass the show on to new hosts and say goodbye. Um, this is not going to happen immediately. We're still figuring out exactly who the new host will be. Gabe will definitely be around for a while, which is great news because Gabe is awesome. And I'll be in and out until that's all decided. But soon I'm going to step away and leave the show in better hands. Uh, I, there are a couple of reasons why, um, my job at Slate outside of the podcast has gotten bigger and it's become harder to focus on the show and make it as good as it should be for you guys. And I really want it to be <laughs> good. Um, and so that's one reason. Also, Harry's getting older and not yet at the age, but close to the age where I can tell that I'm getting less comfortable talking about his personal social situations um, and sharing that for all of you. Um, even though I think it's valuable to do so, I also feel sometimes like I'm getting close to being worried about 
um, invading his privacy. And with Dan gone or Dan leaving, it seemed like the right time for me to move on. I really, really, really love doing the show. Um, and I love doing it with Dan. And I think we developed a really great thing together and a great shtick. And I'm eager for someone else to get to develop, uh, two other people to get to develop their great shtick uh, together and bring new perspective and experiences to the show because mine are old and tired. So <laughs> I'm not leaving yet. Um, and you guys are awesome. Uh, but this is just a little early warning that soon I'm going to go. Uh, and we're going to have a chance to say goodbye to Allison properly. Um, the next episode of the show, we'll do a whole, uh, Viking funeral. What is that? I hope that's not where we set fire to your body because we're definitely not going to be setting fire to Allison's body. <laughs> and send body. it off on the water. And send it off on a, the... on a burning ship. Yeah, I mean, we're not. They're worse. Yeah. No, we're not. I mean, no. <laughs> um, but we will, um, you know, pay tribute to Allison and, and, uh, the great shows that she has done. Um, and you can contribute to that. Go to our Facebook page, uh, search for mom and dad are fighting on Facebook. Uh, and post your favorite memory of Allison, something brilliant and insightful and sharp and witty and sardonic that she said, or uh, some incredibly dumb parenting boner that she related <laughs> to you. Uh, and and we will relive all of those memories Can't with wait. her uh, on the next episode. All right. Let's get to triumphs and fails. What do you got? Okay. Uh, when I wasn't working, I was going to Harry's basketball game. Uh, so... I have a basketball game fail. This is actually a few weeks old, and I think I've already corrected it, but I want to talk about it anyway. So are you a – would you call yourself a sports dad, Gabe? I would call myself whatever is like the total opposite of a sports dad. That is the dad that I am. Right. Uh, and my, I don't mean like athletic. No. You mean like Caring a fan about of sports. following the sports and, right. and, and bringing your kids into your sort of passionate fans' interest in sporting events. No, I am not that dad. I mean that, but I also more mean like a stage mom, but for sports, you know, like oh. kind of like the, the dad screaming at his kids from the sidelines. No, I will never be that dad. Although if either of my kids ever like gets into sports, I'm sure I would love watching them play sports. Yeah. But I will never like be the dad who is an asshole about sports. I will be an asshole dad in many ways, <laughs> but the sports asshole dad will not be me. So I'm the asshole, uh, it turns out. I, growing up, was not into sports. I was super, I was very, very into ballet. Um, and I put a lot of pressure on myself to be good to ballet. But thinking back on it, my parents put no pressure on me whatsoever. They were not stage parents or sports parents. Um, but Harry is really into sports. And I turn out to care. Um, I don't know if most most sports parents, most dads or moms yelling from the sidelines, I don't know if they're self-aware, like if they know that they're doing it. Probably they are. Um, I choose to think they're not, and so I'm a different class of sports parent. I'm the self-aware sports parent. So, it, like, I know what I'm doing as I'm doing it, and I know that it's awful as I'm doing it. That definitely makes it better. <laughs> no, it makes it worse. So this has shown itself in various ways, but a couple weeks ago at Harry's basketball game, which what is the opposite of uh, his team is – what's the opposite of undefeated? Only defeated. <laughs> <laughs> Unvictorious. His team is exceptionally defeated. Um, which is rough on the kids yeah. and rough on the coaches who are total menches and happens to also be rough on me. And we were watching the game and he was like, it just, he was in la la land. He was like not into it. He was not, he didn't seem to be like exerting much effort. He wasn't like, he didn't seem to be knowing where he should be. And it was just like so painful 
watching that for me. And I was sitting next to a mom whose kid also didn't really seem to know what he was doing, but she did not seem to care at all, which is the correct response, I think. Like, I know in my head, like, I shouldn't care. And I also, like, I just want him to have fun. But I really cared. And beyond caring, when we got in the car after the game, I, like, I lectured him um, about, like, trying harder and hustling. (laughs) I think I said the word hustling. Uh, And he was pissed and said that I should leave that for the coaches. And if the coaches think he needs to hustle more or do anything differently, the coaches will tell him. Um, And I think that he's right. And I felt bad about it. And I definitely hurt his feelings. Like when he got home, the first thing he told John about it was like, mom thought I played terribly and was hard on me. Uh, So since then, I've definitely overcorrected. And I've been like super like supportive mom. He's also like played so much harder so you got to him i don't know if i mean maybe he was just having a bad day and the two aren't related maybe they are related i don't know if i should feel good about that or not but anyway that's my fail which is just like i care about how i don't know if i care i don't care if they win or lose it would be nice for them to win everyone needs a win now and then but i mostly care if he's like trying really hard really interesting that he responded with a jurisdictional argument (laughs) That like, <laughs> it wasn't like, mom, that really hurts my feelings or mom, stop being such a bitch or whatever, yeah. that it was like, that's not your job. That's the coach's job. Your job is to be my mom and be supportive and affectionate. That seems correct though, right? I guess. I mean, you can't always be supportive and affectionate as a parent, right? Like if they come home with bad grades, then you're sort of expected to like tell them to shape it up or right. something. But grades matter. Yeah, I mean, if they're going to be playing, I don't know, but if they're going to be playing sports, presumably, like, their attitude to playing of the sports matters in some yeah. way as well. Yeah, I mean, he, <laughs> I think I told you this, but in his on his old team, he used to put his hands in his pockets. They had, like, pockets in his the basketball shorts. I don't know why, but, like, I don't think there's anything worse you can do when you're playing basketball than put your hands in your pockets. So I, I did tell him that, um, but I think it's better for him if I stay out of it and I don't sh- I don't want to show him that I care, I guess. I don't think it's good to show him that I care. It that seems like the thing that, the thing that's only going to get worse, so I probably should focus on toning it down as much as I can at this age. Yeah, that seems right. Yeah. Okay, what do you have? Uh so I have a fail too. Um Eliza is learning to read. She's in kindergarten and they're doing reading. And like, you know, there's some of the kids who like magically picked up reading at age three and a half. And she's not one of those kids. Um, She's one of the kids who's learning to read now by like sounding out all of the letters. And it's, you know, it turns out it's very difficult to learn how to read. And it's frustrating for her because she likes things that come easily and because she spends a lot of time with books and she looks at pictures and she remembers the stories and she reads comics, which she can just read through following the pictures. And so now it feels like taking many, many, many big steps back on something that she likes to do and that gives her a lot of pleasure. Uh, and the way they're, what we're in the middle of now is a charity reading drive where she has to read a certain number of books in the month and her grandparents. The readathon? This one is, is it called a readathon? Reading challenge. Okay. Um, and the grandparents all pledge money if she reads a certain number of books over the course of the month and it goes to a good program at her school for low-income kids. Um, And so she's excited about it and, you know, or she began the month excited about it. Um, And I made a couple of mistakes with the reading challenge. Um, The first mistake was 
we said like, okay, so pick some great books that you love to read and then we'll read those books. No, you gotta, no. You gotta pick the books that are easy to read, it turns out. You gotta pick like Hop on Pop or Go Dog Go. These are, because she has to read them all actually herself? Well, she reads them with a parent or with a grown-up, but like, yeah, it's about her learning to read. I mean, we help her. It's not, she doesn't, you know, if she gets stuck, we don't leave her (laughs) stumbling. Um, But yeah, it's about her doing the reading. So she picked the books that she likes having us read to her, which are not the books that she should be reading. So first we did that. And then, like, often when I see her, the time I spend with her is bedtime, right? Like, we're, we give her, I get home and she's having dinner or she's had dinner and then I, like, put her to bed. And it's nice and it's special time and we read together and it's lovely. And I thought we would sort of work this into that. That is the worst possible time to be learning to read. You don't want a challenging, like, sounding your way through words at that point. You want to, like... And I kept sort of, I didn't quite get it at first, stupid. And I kept like pushing her to do it. And I was like, oh, you can do better than this. I don't think I said that, but that was definitely you my attitude. You are at- a sports dad, that but was for de- reading. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely my attitude was <laughs> like, I've seen you do better than this. And yeah. I'm not going to let you like slack on Hop this. Hop on pop, yeah. damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> totally. It's a green dog on a yellow tree. Uh and and she got more and more frustrated, and eventually she said, um, reading at bedtime is a nice thing, and you're making it awful. Aww. And I realized, you know, that's where you're like, oh, man, reading at bedtime is a nice thing. I'm making it awful. <laughs> you know what I mean? She characterized the situation very, very clearly. Yeah. So, you know, we've adjusted and dialed back the level of the books and change we now i don't know when we're going to do it we did a bunch over the weekend but like i try to do it as soon as i get home but i i don't know you know well i'm sure she'll hit her reading challenge goal we were not too ambitious with the goal um but that was a misfire on the reading challenge yeah i mean i that makes sense that it wouldn't be fun for her to have to try like at night is just when dad That's or mom read to me yeah. yeah my hot tip is to just not sign up for the readathon. <laughs> That's what I do. Uh, okay. Having a child will bankrupt you. That is the extremely jarring and yet totally relatable headline of a recent piece on L.com, which details the particular struggles of a few women with children and also goes into the infuriating history of childcare legislation, a history I didn't know much about. Its author, Bryce Covert, an occasional contributor to Slate and economics editor for Think Progress, is here to talk about the piece and the problem that, in my opinion, can never be highlighted enough. Hey. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So I've read plenty about the cost of child care, and I definitely feel it in my own life, as I'm guessing Gabe does. But I didn't know the history of attempts at subsidized child care, and I didn't, especially didn't know uh, that once we had a successful program. Right. It's this hidden history that I didn't know years into writing about it as a policy writer. And then I discovered it and was like, oh, my God, wait, we we actually did this. And it worked really well. Um, so for listeners who are also probably in that uh, same place, uh, this is during World War II. Um, you know, all the men get shipped off to fight in the war. And then, you know, they want Rosie the Riveters in the factory. And so if moms are leaving the house to go work, where do their kids go? Um, during the Depression, there was like a couple of centers. They were mostly run by charities. They were like in weird places. There weren't that many spots. Um, So they were just very quickly overwhelmed. 
And there were these horror stories of people like locking their kids in cars and like chaining them to things. And Congress got kind of upset. Um, And so what they did, which was really interesting, is it's not like they passed universal child care, really. What they did is they took the Lanham Act, which was meant to make infrastructure for the war. So, you know, building whatever we needed to make the war machine happen. And they interpreted it to also cover this as infrastructure. This was part of the war infrastructure. Um, They gave money to states to build these centers, to staff these centers. It was very high unemployment, so they were able to get these pretty talented teachers in, but they also trained them. And so the the quality of the care was really high. Um, The ratio of teacher to child was really low. Um, They ran for really long hours. They had to cover factory shifts. So they were basically open like really long amounts of the day and people could bring their kids and drop them off and pick them up. Um, And it was also in heavily subsidized. So in today's dollars, like 10 bucks a day. Um, And they were hugely popular. Um, You know, we all sort of know that women rushed into the factories and into the workforce and they never really left. Um, You know, these women that went into work, that level sort of continued. Um, And this was part of helping that happen. And also people have gone back and evaluated what it did for kids and it increased their education. It increased their employment later in life, their earnings later in life. It just had these huge positive benefits for the moms and for the kids. Um, all so what happened? Uh, the war ended. <laughs> and they just... <laughs> and they just killed it. The advocates had wanted... First of all, advocates for, you know, sort of children um, wanted to make this not part of the Lanham Act. They wanted this to be originally an actual new program and got voted down. Um, and then they tried to keep it going after the war effort. And President Truman was just like, nope, men are back. Women go home. We're done with this little experiment in child care. And so he he first tried to shut it down like the day the war was declared ended. There's a bit of an uproar because husbands weren't going to be home for a while. So they extended it a bit. And then I think after two years, it was gone. And that policy debate was framed around the role of women in child, of mothers specifically yes. in child care. It really, it really was. And it was funny, too. It was almost like a, a program of last resort because at first they just wanted childless women to be in the workforce. And then that wasn't enough to fill the factories. And then they were like, OK, we'll do women who have older kids. And then that wasn't enough. And so by the time they got to younger women with younger children, that's when the Lanham Act comes in because they're like, we can't leave these babies home alone. Um, so it was all framed around that. And then as soon as men came home, women, again, were supposed to leave the factory. And so they didn't need childcare anymore, in theory. And you write a bit about then the efforts after that. And for a while, it wasn't so partisan, right? Like there were other yeah. reasons that 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 things didn't happen. But only in the 90s, it was in the 90s or in the 80s, it became so, so partisan. The, the turning point really seems to be actually 1971. Yeah. Um, so it... It becomes an issue again in the 1960s during sort of the Great Society, Lyndon Johnson. Um, you know, they're creating all these sort of anti-poverty programs, these big programs uh, like Medicare. And it didn't seem like that big a leap to say, OK, we know that children, they started to know more that the first five years are really important for kids. Women were still starting to enter the workforce. Um It didn't seem like that controversial of an idea. So, um a bipartisan bill passed both the House and the Senate, which would have laid the groundwork uh, for 
something similar to the Lanham Act, a national network of child care systems that would have been heavily subsidized and had quality standards. Um, But just at that moment, the evangelical right is just starting to sort of come together, become a movement and gain power, mostly through Pat Buchanan. And so Nixon, President Nixon at the time, uh, had been in favor of child care. He seemed to think it was important. People thought he was eventually going to sign it. Even if he vetoed the first bill, they figured he'd eventually come around to some sort of permutation. Um, but then apparently historians sort of agree. Pat Buchanan helped write this veto that Nixon released in 1971, and it was just scathing, and it shocked everybody. These arguments, these sort of anti-child care arguments had been going on in the fringes, and it was... Um, first of all, it was the Sovietization of children. You know, this is all sort of Cold War rhetoric because, you know, they provided child care and it was going to be like this, like, horrible factory of babies stacked up against each other. It was going to be government mind control and all this stuff. And also this, this you know, f- traditional family values kind of rhetoric starts to come. Um, you know, if women are in the workforce, you're going to ruin the family, you're going to ruin children, our traditional way of life. Um, Pat Buchanan writes, helps write this veto that has all of these things packed in it that just hadn't been in the congressional debate. It hadn't been on the radar. Um, and it made the whole issue just toxic because all of a sudden talking about childcare was not about, you know, how much do you spend and who sets the standards and what does it look like? It, it's about this moral argument about families and, you know, brainwashing kids. And then how did the issue get back on the table? Well, it's sort of slowly come to where it is there now, but it's pretty recent. Um, You know, it gets back into the political debate with um, President uh, George H.W. Bush. When he's running, it starts to be this political issue in the campaign. And then he signed into law um, a block grant that helps sort of cover some of the costs, but it's pretty bare bones, honestly. Um, So the issue came back, but in a very sort of meager way that it was just targeted really at low-income families. Um, Talk about like really doing something robust and national and universal hits the scene again when President Obama starts talking about universal preschool. That was in his State of the Union address. Um, And then you see in this past presidential election, um, you know, both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton had pretty robust proposals for childcare. But then even on the other side, which I think is perhaps even more remarkable, um, you have Marco Rubio talking about tax credits, but he's talking about them uh, in a way where we're saying, you know, we're going to strengthen families by helping them pay for childcare, which is directly the opposite of the whole traditional families thing. Um And then Trump comes out and sort of blows everybody away by saying he's going to actually do some, you know, a program on child care. His is also tax cuts. And, you know, it in reality, it will probably not offer a ton of help for a lot of people. But just having that issue on both sides of the aisle in a presidential election means this issue uh, that it seems like it's just not toxic the way it used to be anymore. So that's like the frustrating history of it. You also, for the piece, and in a lot of your work, I think, have talked to a lot of parents and families. And this is like something that touches, you know, really everyone except for the extremely wealthy, because poor poor families obviously struggle with this, but middle class and upper middle class families do as well. Like, how do, how do those experiences 
differ? What are the different kind of struggles and obstacles at different socioeconomic levels that people face? Yeah, it is pretty across the board. I mean, obviously, if you have lots of resources, you know, the financial aspect of it is not probably an issue for you. Um, If you're a low-income family, you're facing two things. One of the things that all families are facing is accessibility. There's actually a lot of places in this country where no matter how much money you have, there's just not slots. Um, There's one study that looked at eight states and more than 40 percent of kids live in what they call a child care desert. So there's either no slots available at all or there's three times as many kids as need a slot. Um, And then If you can get a spot, there's the affordability issue. And for low-income families, we do have some subsidies, but they serve a really small portion of the population that's even eligible. It's like 15% of eligible kids right now. It's been falling. It's a block grant, so the money doesn't keep up with need. It doesn't keep up with inflation. It's just sort of steady. And so fewer and fewer people are being reached. Um, But at least you can sort of access some of these subsidies. You get to the middle class. And there's really not much available to you. There's a tax credit that's worth about $3,000 at the max, which you're putting up against something that for a lot of people gets into the tens of thousands of dollars a year. Um, And that's something everybody's trying to afford. I mean, it's really this sort of market-based individualistic system where everybody's out there funding for themselves. There's so little government funding and there's also so little government regulation. Um, You know, another sort of leg of this stool is quality. You know, you find a spot and you afford a spot, but what kind of care are you getting? And the quality of care in this country is very poor. And it's also just very poorly regulated. Most states, no state gets an A or B grade on its health and safety standards. Um, And that too takes resources. You know, even if you up the standards, you need the funding to help centers implement them and follow them. So there's kind of no corner of this system that's working well for really anybody. Why is it so expensive? It's a question that people are really trying to figure out. Part of it is that it's a service where it's hard to find efficiencies. This is all very labor intensive and you can't say, okay, well, we're going to have, you know, we're going to try and cut costs for parents by having 20 kids to one teacher. I mean, that's going to end up being really dangerous. Um, And then just the rest of the costs are pretty fixed, too. You know, you're paying for benefits for your employees. You're paying for um, the space that you inhabit, Um, the standards that are there that you have to meet if you want to be licensed. There is not a lot there helping you get to, to meeting them. But it's definitely not (laughs) going to providers pay. I mean, this is another part of the problem is that child care providers are paid the way we pay fast food workers um, or parking lot attendants. I mean, that's the kind of pay they're making. It's like $10 an hour, which also goes to quality. Um, If you don't pay people well, you'll get really high turnover. Um, You'll potentially have people who are not super qualified, um, who have not gone through safety trainings. So it's definitely not going towards those things. It really seems to just be going toward the cost of overhead. Um, And, you know, I've talked to providers, too, and they want to be doing, they would like to be able to meet more rigorous standards. They want to pay their providers more. They know more than anyone else that turnover is really high in this industry. And they just don't have, you know, there's only so much you can squeeze from parents. And the federal government is kicking in very little. And no one, you know, there's this pot of money is just so constrained and so small. 
So what's the model here? Is the somewhat successful universal pre-K push, I mean, I guess it was successful and it's been successful in the city to a certain extent in a couple of other cities, but is that the model for this, for, for daycare and lower lower grade preschool? It could be. I mean, so it depends on what you're talking about when you're talking about preschool. And it's funny because we're talking about the same age kids a lot, but there's people who talk about childcare and people who talk about preschool and you're sort of talking past each other sometimes. Preschool is usually educationally focused, obviously. um, But that means it's not focused on the parents so much. And so often you get you get universal preschool, but it's like from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. I mean, that's what stuck out to me about the, you know, during the war that it was like, like you said, the 12 hour days. Right. I think, man, what I, yeah. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> 24 hours. Just drop them off forever. No, but really, I mean, preschool is not about what do parents need. It's about right. what's good for kids. You want what's good for kids, but you also need this to help parents out. Um, So it has been successful in New York City, and I think that New York City is trying to figure out ways to make it longer days so that it's not just 9 to 11 or something really crazy like that. Um, But then also that tends to – like at the earliest age, that tends to be three years old. And it's zero to three where some really critical development stuff is happening for kids. And also we don't have – guaranteed paid family leave. So people are sort of out of luck really early in their kid's life. So there's this very fragile period of children's lives where we're, you know, we're not really talking about that much at all in the preschool context. Um, And so you can talk about childcare. Um, You know, I think it makes sense to talk about this comprehensively. Why are we talking about preschool here and childcare there? Why do we have a market here? And then you get to, you know, age five and you go into kindergarten and it's a public good and it's a public service and everybody gets a place in a public school. Um, you know, it just it it could be expanded and universal, similar to, to what we did with the Lanham Act, what we nearly did in 1971. Um, you know, there would be all sorts of questions about funding and regulation and who, you know, do you do it at the state level or the local level? But that's just a, such a different framing from the way anyone's really talking about it right now. It seems like there would just be, I mean, obviously there is a ground, groundswell of support for this, but like it crosses all, it, it cr- crosses all, almost all classes. It crosses almost all like types of families and I mean it just it's it is it's universal but I guess so is the need for health care and that wasn't easy either or continues the, not the to other be easy. thing that's tough with with um, sort of young children and work family issues is that we tell parents you know you're on your own until age five figure it out and then they get you know and it's like the craziest time when you're trying to figure out how to be a parent and be a worker and whatever and you're really stressed and you're not sleeping and then at age five you sort of age out of it and things are okay. And so your your window for organizing people around this when they're directly affected by it, first of all, they're like sleeping the least. <laughs> yeah. And then they're also, you know, it's it's limited. You know, the people don't necessarily, you're not necessarily thinking about it before you have kids. And then once you sort of swing it and they get into school age, you're not as directly Desperate. impacted by it. Yeah, that and makes the, sense. The, the point at which people would be most motivated to work for change is the point at which they have the least amount of time and resources to exactly. do that work. Exactly. So, you know, I, it's, which is not to say I don't think that a movement could be built, but I think it's it's a hard constituency and it's it's got these funny fluctuations of people's time. 
Well, listeners, I'm sure that you struggle with this or have struggled with this. So go to our Facebook page if you want. Tell us all. You don't need to tell us your financial information, but tell us the details of like what's been hard for you or what was hard for you when you had younger kids. Um, and we'll read some uh, experiences on the next episode. Thank you so much, Bryce. Everyone should read Bryce's piece. Having a child will bankrupt you. And we'll link to that from Facebook and our show page. Thanks a lot for coming in. Thank you, guys. Each week, we take a question from a listener and do our best to answer it. If you have a question that you would like to submit to us for our best attempt at an answer, call and leave a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-7833. Today's call comes from Laura. I have a question. Uh, I'm not a parent myself, but it's about giving gifts to my friend's kids. And I emailed her asking for gift suggestions for her son. She wrote back and told me that he's really into football right now and would like anything related to football. While I, of course, want to make him happy and turn her happy, I do have personal issues with supporting football. Um, I know firsthand from working with veterans about the lifelong impact that traumatic brain injury can have neurologically, cognitively, emotionally, socially. I'm really struggling with, do I just not say anything, get him something else, and just say, oh, actually, I found something else for him? So the message got cut off, but but I think everyone uh, understood the dilemma that you're presenting to us. First of all, on a strict, like, moral protocol basis, you don't have to give someone a particular gift, right? Just because something is on a wedding registry doesn't mean you have to give them that particular thing. It's a gift. It's supposed to be uh, an act of generosity. So you're within your rights not to just just to give a present that you think is a cool present. And, and hopefully this kid is not such a monomaniac that literally anything in the world that's not, that doesn't have a football theme uh, will be a crushing disappointment to the child. Um, so my, my first impulse would just be to find something else cool that's age appropriate uh, that has to do with, you know, My Little Pony or superheroes or whatever else might be um, relevant to this kid's interest. Um if you do want to talk about it, I, I I don't know if it's something that you want to talk to your friend about. It, it seems to me it makes a difference whether this kid like is into playing football, in which case they stand to be, you know, to suffer some of the injuries that you're talking about, or whether they're just an, a, an avid football fan, in which case they're participating in something that you don't approve of and that's harmful to other people, but they're not like actually in, in jeopardy. Um, if the kid is playing football, then maybe you want to make your friend aware that like, Hey, do you know that, um, this can have these effects or something like that? Um, but my, if this were me, I would just figure out something else that's nice and, and give them that. And, and if they're going to be jerks about you giving them a nice present that doesn't happen to be their favorite thing, then, you know, stuff them. Uh, I agree with you. And I think if you do want to say something, I wouldn't even say it in this context. Like maybe sometime you can just like send your friend an email with a link to a story that you see about CT if you're actually concerned um, about like her child's physical well-being. Uh, but it's pretty amazing how far this has swung. We are hosting a Super Bowl party on Sunday. And when I sent out the invite for it, I like worded it in this like set aside your... <laughs> Moral objections and come hang out and eat chili. Like, it come really our, is. Come to our home and watch the bloodthirsty gladiatorial contest. Yeah, but it's, I mean, I am i don't uh, 
take issue with the movement against it, and it's probably all right and good, but it's it's gotten complicated fairly quickly. Yeah. I mean, the other <laughs> thing is you can, at this point, you can probably assume that your friend is at least aware of the controversy surrounding football, right? There are like big budget movies starring Will Smith about it yeah. and stuff like that. So it, it, it's unlikely that like you're going to be the person to give them that information for the first time. Yep. So something that we have noticed with Eliza recently is she used to have friends who were boys. She, she like, she was sort of a serial monogamist. She had, there was a boy named Hudson when she was two and she loved to play with him. And then when she was three, there was a boy named Marlo for a while. And then after that, there was another boy named Sasha and she would have these quite intense friendships with them. Uh, and then sometime in pre-K, she started only playing with girls. Um, and it seemed like her whole pre-K class had segregated like by activity. She would say, oh, Sasha's always playing rescue bots now. He doesn't play with me anymore. And and she didn't play rescue bots. And all her friends were girls and they would play, you know, freeze tag, like not like always, uh, you know, princess games, but uh, it, it would always be all girls. Um, we're going to talk in a little bit to Diane Levin, a professor at Wheelock College in Boston who, who studies early childhood, among other things. Uh, she's going to tell us a little bit about what to expect. Um, Allison, do your guys have female friends? Uh, the eight-year-old does not, and the five-year-old basically does not. He can hang a little more, but like for his birthday party, he didn't want to have any girls. And the three-year-old, I think, still has a couple. It's something I feel a little sad about because... As a kid, I think I always had friends who were girls, not always a lot, but some. I went to an all-boys school, and and I all of my friends who were girls were like family friends or from outside of school or whatever. But I think it was, you know, I think it, it was a nice part of my childhood. And I think probably like when I started having, you know, when I became, a, I went through puberty and started like being interested in girls and having whatever sort of difficulties I had, like getting a girlfriend or like figuring out um, adolescent stuff. I, I think like having girls who I like had a long relationship with and like had a, you know could talk to about stuff i think that was like a helpful thing for me in my life um and it makes me a little sad to think that like kids might go through long stretches of childhood without having a friend of the opposite sex just because like then what that whole gender is like a mystery to you and i mean i definitely never had uh boyfriends i never had boyfriends and i also never had male friends uh you know until i guess high school or maybe later junior high um, when it starts to be like, you know, you have a crew that's mixed and some of the people are dating and um, it's slightly different. But I never had like a, a male friend who I called on the phone or went to a movie with. Um, so it doesn't seem totally abnormal to me. I mean, we, and we, we did have family friends. Um, and I think, I guess my kids have family friends. They wouldn't invite that family friend over for a one-on-one -on -one play date if I asked them who they wanted to invite over when they do hang out they have fun um, so I guess that's a friend but I don't know it's not it doesn't I guess it doesn't bother me I guess it feels although I don't want them to I fight against their sense of what a girl is or what a boy is and I think this makes it harder um, something about the like the hangout friendships with people of their own gender doesn't feel unhealthy or dangerous to me dangerous is much 
stronger than I feel about yeah. it. I'm so it was unhealthy, actually. Um, it's more like just, oh, here's something that seemed valuable to me and that like she had last year and, and now what's happened? That seems like a shame. I guess I would be bummed if, so our neighborhood is, very, is for some reason, almost everyone has boys. And there's a little girl across the street who's awesome. And she, like when she's out, my kids play with her and rides, ride bikes with her and relate to her. And it's totally fine. They probably wouldn't like ever be like, let's invite her over for a play date, but like as long as I would be, I would be more upset or more worried about it if like they were like disgusting, Allie. You know, Ew, like, right? girls, yeah. yeah. I mean, although they'll go through that too. I mean, I, I drove a carpool home the other day of three boys from basketball, and one of them said, "What does it mean when a girl says you have a cute butt? Don't all butts look the same?" <laughs> <laughs> and I, great question. Yeah, great question. And Harry was like, "I don't know," and then. The other kid who's like seems a little more mature was like, I get it. Uh, but, you but know. Did he get it in a way that he could convey to the other kids? No, but I think he got it. He's, yeah. he's a sophisticated kid. Uh, but like I it was great for the three of those guys to be like back there sort of wondering. I mean, maybe that's uh, like what's up with those weird girls isn't great. But I don't know. It feels it just feels regular to me like in a this way is that's the normal way that yeah are. i mean maybe it's maybe that's in, like it's insidious and it's like snowballs into you know territory that i wouldn't be comfortable with but it feels okay now so to weigh in on all this we we have diane levin a professor at wheelock college uh diane thanks for being with us well it's a pleasure to be with you thank you is it typical what what what's happened in my daughter's classroom? Is it typical in a pre-K classroom uh, to sort of socially self-segregate by gender like that? It's very common. Yes, I hear about it all the time. Teachers often want help figuring out how to try to deal with it in a way where they don't have to be um, kind of dictatorial but how to try to find ways to help girls and boys interact more because the way they segregate does tend to be by the kinds of activities you mentioned. Um, boys are involved often in activities that are kind of super tough, superhero kinds of male play, and girls segregate into often much more feminine kinds of girl activities, but then it carries over into other kinds of activities. So, for instance, um, one mother told me that um, her daughter was excluded from the girl lunch table because she didn't have a Disney princess lunchbox that that's what she needed to have. And one of the reasons why a lot of this is happening is the toys and media that is marketed to young children starting at very young ages is media divided because they because marketers know it's a way to sell more products. Children get the message from a very young age as they're trying to figure out their gender, I'm a boy, I'm not a girl, I'm a girl, I'm not a boy. What is for me and what's not for me. What about parents? If we, is it um, when my kids make a list for their birthday parties and it's all boys or when they only want a boy to come over for a play date, should I force the issue? Should I should I set up a play date with a girl in their class even though they don't want that play date? Should I make them include girls on their, on their, in their birthday party I, invite list? What I would argue is just laying down the law and making them do it isn't necessarily a good solution because then they just get more sneaky. And as they get older, they learn how to hide things from you, et cetera. And it just becomes the beginning of an ongoing battle. I urge parents to try to have discussions. So how come you don't want Jenny to come to your party, Joey? You used to like to play with Jenny a lot. And, and Joey may say, well, all the other boys are going to laugh at me because they don't want any girls to come to their party. 
I mean, it's not perfect solution, but we're never going to make it perfect. But what we're doing, and there's so many issues like this that come up in these times when media and popular culture and peers manipulate so much in children's lives at younger and younger ages, the more we can stay connected with our kids and develop these kinds of communication where we complicate their thinking a little bit, we get them thinking about these issues a little bit more, we give them new ways of beginning to think about it. Is there an age where cross-gender friendships come back? Do they become more common again? And, and, and when does that usually happen? Well, the issue is what's happening now as they get so, boys and girls get so alienated from each other because things are so stereotyped and so objective in terms of girls are objects for being pretty and sweet and boys are objects for being tough and macho, when the relationships come back, it often is around sexual behavior. I think, you know, when they start having the kinds of relationships that happen in the teen years, but kids have developed fewer skills for having positive care connected relationships when they're older with the opposite gender, if they've been so objectified and they're thinking about them and had so little opportunity to relate to each other when they're younger. All right. I think that's all the time we have today. Diane Levin, thank you so much for being with us. Diane Levin is the author of So Sexy, So Soon and of Beyond Remote Controlled Childhood, Teaching Children in the Media Age. Thanks, Diane. You're welcome. Okay. Time for recommendations, Uh, things that we do that you should do as well. Uh, Here is my recommendation for you. My recommendation is that you should host a talk show with your kids. If you have young children like me, then maybe you often spend dinner times trying to get them to tell you something about their day or their experience or their feelings or really just get any information about them at all. And you realize that kids' brains don't work in an adult conversational way where like they they don't they're not used to sitting around a table and like synthesizing information or events from their recent past into useful or meaningful anecdotes. Uh, and so we had kind of struggled to figure out like, what do you do at mealtime with like a six year old and a two and a half year old or whatever, like other than trying to get them to eat the food properly, then like, what, what are we supposed to do with this apparently precious family mealtime (laughs) situation? Um, And and we were kind of flailing around at, at one point uh, recently, um, and I just started saying like, hello and welcome to the Daddy Show. And this week we're going to be talking about animals. What kind of animal would you be if you turned into an animal? And they immediately sort of sat straight up because now we're playing a game. Uh, and they, at, in their different ways, at their different like age levels, like had a way of participating in it. Eliza had a whole story about how maybe she would be this animal, or maybe she would be that other animal, or maybe she would be a flying animal, or whatever. Um, and then Theo watched her very closely, and then I turned to him and I said, "You know what animal would you be?" And 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 he said. I would be stairs because <laughs> the game that he's on right now is the game of giving an answer from a different category from the, the thing that you're asking him about. I want light bulb pizza or whatever. Uh, and and so then I could, you know, you can do the like flummoxed talk show host who is getting an answer that doesn't work. But e- either way, like I assume we will go through many stages with this before Eliza um, becomes embarrassed by it and refuses to participate. Um, but uh, for the age that we're at, it has sort of framed and structured mealtime conversation very effectively. So I recommend hosting an impromptu talk show with your children. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Uh, you can make it a podcast. Uh, my recommendations are a couple of things, two things that I actually have not watched or read, but I've just heard my children laughing at, so assume they must be good. One is uh, John's been reading Calvin and Hobbes uh, comics with them, and they're like, I mean, I don't think they've ever responded to anything like they have these these books, like hysterical. Stone classics. Yeah. Okay, so that's one. Uh, then they've been watching the Netflix series, The Lemony Snicket, A Series of Unfortunate Events, which I intended to watch with them. Like, looks like it should be good. It's supposed to be good. But then they're, they've gotten past me. Like, they've already watched three episodes, so I'll never catch up. But they love it, and they are talking about it all the time. So I'm going to pass along their recommendation for that. And then I've been reading to them um, from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, which I don't think I ever read as a kid. Did I you? remember the movie. I don't think I read the book. I don't think I read the book and I don't think I um, saw the movie, uh, but it was like a familiar title to me. Anyway, um, their aunt got it for them um, and it's great. It's about two kids who run away from the suburbs to New York City to live in uh, the Met and teach their parents a lesson or the older daughter's goal is to teach her parents a lesson. And we're not through with it yet, but it's a super fun book and feels timeless. Um so I recommend all three. Okay, that's our show. Uh, remember, please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash momanddadarefighting. Uh, email us at momanddadatslate.com. Give us a call for some advice at 424-255-7833. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's a lot of stuff for you to do. Do all of that stuff. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. See our full roster of shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Our show is produced by Zach Dinerstein. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks to our guest, Diane Levin. Uh, thanks to Allison Benedict. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. There's nothing but horror and inconvenience on the way. Ask any stable person, should I watch? And they will say, look away, look away.